we're back with the tech policy grind. I'm Rima Musa, and I'm a fellow with the Internet Law and Policy Foundry, the organization where the next generation of tech law and policy professionals convene to write, think, and talk about the web, technology, and disruptive innovation. This is the Tech Policy Grind, the Foundry's podcast where we chat about what's going on in the world of tech policy. Welcome back to the Tech Policy Grind. This week's episode is another edition of our Hackathon webinar series, condensed and packaged into podcast form for TPGers as per usual. If you're new to the show or just now following the Foundry, the theme for this year's annual policy hackathon is artificial intelligence. In our biweekly webinars, are diving into all the nuances of law and policy topics intersecting with unique issues that AI brings up. Today's episode features a conversation led by Foundry Fellow Alvaro Maranian on the subject of AI use cases and innovations. Alvaro chatted with Hodan Omar, Senior Policy Analyst at the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation, or ITIF, Charlie Snyder, Head of Security Policy at Google, and Jillian Diebold, a policy analyst also of ITIF. They discussed how artificial intelligence is being developed and applied across different industries, including cybersecurity, education, and more. Enjoy the episode. Hi, everyone. My name is Alvaro Marañón. Please welcome our panelists. First, we have Hodan Omar. Hi. Thanks for having me, Alvaro. We also have Charlie Snyder. Hi there. Great to be here with you. And we have Jillian Diebold. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me, Alvaro. So to begin, uh, I think I feel like it's important to kind of set the stage. Uh, what is artificial intelligence? And is it a tool, the latest technological development, or something entirely different? You know, I think there's the kind of formal definition of what AI is. Um, you know, it's a branch of computer science that studies, um, you know, computer systems that perform operations and tasks that previously required human intelligence. Um, but I think there's also the kind of easier way or a seemingly easier way to understand it that is popular right now, which is through analogies. Um, and there are lots of analogies out there right now um, from, you know, AI is like commercial aviation. You know, each country has its own um, developments going on, but um, these things work across borders. AI is like nuclear weapons. You know, it's a very dangerous tool that should be tightly controlled. Some people say that AI is like, um, you know, other general technologies of the past, things like electricity or the steam engine. In reality, AI is not exactly like any of those things. Um, it would also be helpful to kind of discuss what is not AI. I know uh, it's used as anything. Uh, Charlie, you may be able to speak upon this, but uh, in the past, we've seen everything become cyber or everything become the next, I guess, uh, hit term or the next popular term. Um, in, your, in your expertise and in your, in your position at Google, you've been using uh, advanced technologies to enhance cybersecurity and preserve the privacy of its users. Can you speak around uh, the path you guys took around AI and when I guess it began? AI, to an extent, is in the in the eye of the beholder, or or perhaps sometimes the marketer, um, in that it can mean many things to to many different people. You know, a loose rule of thumb is just advanced techniques to use computers to mimic human capabilities, and that has been. Uh, a huge focus at Google over the years. I think we first uh, implemented machine learning techniques to detect whether an email was kind of spam or not 
uh, back in 2011, and we've built machine learning techniques into most, if not all of our both products and internal processes uh, over the years. What's new now is is the uh, rise of kind of uh, uh, large language models and the size of them and the capabilities of them. And uh, in terms of products, uh, generative AI uh, and products um, have uh, obviously been driving a lot of the headlines now. But the underlying, uh, uh, you know, things at play, like, uh, again, you know, using machines to perform, you know, human-like uh, tasks uh, goes back quite a long way. Thank you for that, Charlie. Uh, and Jillian, if you could speak about just to give your encounters and your um, your observations of how an AI has been used in education, a field that most people haven't been really focusing in, uh, you often spoke, focus on uh, generative AI in current headlines. From a lot of educational stakeholders, we see kind of this both overhype or, you know, over caution and then kind of also underestimating it. And I think it's something to really caution against. You know, students are really fast on the uptake. You know, when was, when ChatGPT was released in what, November, you know, immediately we saw students using it and trying to figure out how to cheat and all that kind of things. Um, and, you know, teachers and administrators were much more hesitant, kind of had this reactionary look at it. So, you know, what we're seeing is sort of this divergence between, you know, the the older generation that are the educators themselves and the families and administrators kind of not understanding and then students being really, really keen on using this. There's a lot of really interesting um, applications going on, but I think there's just a lot of misconceptions too. Could you each speak a bit about uh, what is the most, your first encounter like with working in this field? Were you optimistic, curious, or simply not impressed. Uh, I know we often get different views around this and it'd be nice to see from your perspectives as people working. Thinking about my first encounter with AI, I vividly remember, you know, having worked in the AI policy space, I vividly remember my first time using, you know, DALI and, um, you know, using ChatGPT. And so I have very clear um, kind of thoughts about when I first started using those and how impressive I found them. But I think what's interesting is to think about, you know, really the first time AI would have touched my life and I think a lot of people's lives is not in ways that we were cognizant of. So, you know, I have a British passport when it was stronger and I was able to run around the EU. Um, I was using, you know, facial recognition technology uh, to get in and out of those borders very quickly. When I was, um, you know, being recommended things on Google, when I was being, um, you know, using it for Instagram and having certain things pushed to me. I mean, all of those experiences had AI enabled, um, you know, were AI enabled and I, I, did, I wasn't cognizant of them. And so my actually my reactions to those things um, and being able to reflect on them in the past, I actually think I was quite um, curious. And, you know, I think that actually my experience of, AIs and, of AI in the way that I didn't know beforehand um, should also be kind of incorporated to these very kind of, you know, now you're using um, chat GPT. What do you think about it? You know, I think it's important to kind of reflect on the fact that AI touches our lives in many ways that we um, are beneficial to us that we don't know. I. I, th I think you're spot on. And, um, you know, I think one of the big one way to help think about, like, why now are we talking about AI so much versus you're exactly right. I mean, these things have been running in the background for years um, is is how close the AI now is to the user experience. So consumers anywhere all over the world now can can more or less, you know, conversate with uh, with a large language model now. Um, whereas in the past, for the most part, these systems were behind kind of like 
enterprise corporate environments that, you know, there may be a language model running or some other um, ML system running in the background that is yielding in a, re a result that will eventually, um, you know, uh, be served to a user in some way. And so that's what's really quite uh, striking about the current moment. Um, but to the point of, you know, the, these being around for a while, I, I think the number one, and again, my, my field is, is security. Uh, the the first major time that I was really uh, you know involved or exposed to uh, this concept uh, was actually kind of in an earlier era in in the field um, prior to the rise of of large language models uh, where a part of the U.S. government called the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency sponsored this Cyber Grand Challenge that uh, was essentially a, a hacking competition where. Uh, different uh, machines would hack each other uh, and then also develop mitigations or, or patches for those hacks um, in real time. And uh, kind of the uh, the culmination of that took place at a, at a conference uh, in, in Las Vegas called DEF CON. And, you know, some folks may be familiar, there's going to be another DEF CON kind of AI hacking competition coming up this summer. Um, that, that earlier generation, which was in, I think, like the 2015, 2016 timeframe, use kind of different technologies, more kind of like brute force fuzzing technologies that a machine would kind of iterate through to find flaws. Whereas now we're talking about obviously large language models that are kind of learning from, you know, wide, you know, corpus of information. Um, so different technologies, but still to the point of, you know, these, you know, the attempts to make machines operate and, and perform human-like tasks has been uh, going on uh, well prior to the kind of current uh, moment that we're in. Yeah, and I mean, I just want to echo of that I wasn't necessarily cognizant of it, but, you know, I am of the generation that, that's millennial between Gen Z and millennials of, you know, I am kind of a digital native. And so I'm thinking back onto, you know, in high school when I would have used ed tech and, you know, there definitely was machine learning applications going on kind of in the background. And I just didn't have that um, same, you know, like you said, user, user facing experience. But, you know, I mean, we were using things like Wolfram Alpha, which was just doing very basic machine learning things to kind of like help us solve math problems or walk you through something like that. And so now, you know, I mean, of first impressions. So when I was using ChatGP for the first time in the winter or, you know, any of these other applications that have come out since, um, in some ways, I was impressed because I had never really considered it in terms of, you know, the language capabilities. But at the same time, it just it felt very natural to me. I wasn't like shocked or anything in, in that way. And, you know, I think a lot of the media was so blown away by it. But I think for a lot of people my age, it was sort of just a natural evolution of tools we kind of had already been using. Could you each speak about some, uh, I guess, developments and use cases in particular, how you've seen it benefit people in uh, both short-term and long-term or the promise of doing so? Similar to, to what Jillian said, um, you know, there's all of these kind of like sexier use cases in my field, like can a, um, you know, can an AI system uh, develop, you know, uh, you know, find vulnerabilities in other systems and develop kind of automated uh, exploitation, um, things like that. But the reality is, is that these capabilities are, um, applicable across, you know, a range of different practices, both in my field and others. And the real value um, uh, can often be found kind of, uh, you know, ironing out kind of some of the more kind of boring and, and nitty gritty tasks in any field. Um, so uh, just an example uh, that that's probably boring to, to lay persons um, is uh, if you're a new employee that starts in an organization, 
machine learning and AI systems by studying all of the employees in that organization can kind of recommend uh, which, which uh, you know, permissions that employee needs, which systems they need access, which, which tools they need access to, and kind of automatically provision that so the employee doesn't have to go through the boring tasks of, I, I need access to this system and this system and this system. There's thousands of, of kind of mundane tasks uh, that can help us save, that you know, AI systems can help us save time uh, with. Um, and at Google, we're, we're pretty focused on finding what all of those kind of smaller use cases are. And I'll, I'll just name two in particular that I'm kind of excited about. First is addressing uh, uh, kind of the skills shortage that we have uh, worldwide uh, for cybersecurity, where I think just in the U.S. alone, I think there's, you know, 700,000 uh, unfilled cybersecurity jobs. Um, you know, these systems can really play a huge role, we think, in helping train uh, people and how to be better cyber professionals or train them and give them the skills they need to enter the workforce um, by, you know, the, having kind of uh, these conversational models that can be very accessible to people who have no experience in the field, learn these kind of baseline concepts. Um, another area that we're really excited about is just the ability to learn from, you know, the vast array of, of existing knowledge about threats and vulnerabilities in our field um, at Google, we have a product called Virus Total that just released a new really cool uh, application of, of, uh, of an LLM where it learns from all of the malicious files that we're aware of. And Virus Total kind of hosts the largest uh, uh, repository of malware or malicious files on the Internet. It learns from all of them and can quickly summarize for new malicious files. Uh, what that file does can quickly tell you, is this file probably malicious or probably not malicious? And so just kind of greatly uh, aids the task of cyber defenders um, in ways both kind of mundane and also very exciting. One of the big benefits of AI, especially to teachers and administrators, is kind of automating those mundane tasks. You know, we know that teachers spend so much time outside of the classroom um, on those administrative things, whether it be, you know, grading tests or, you know, interacting with parents and kind of just reiterating the same information they told students. Um, I think there's a lot of opportunity there to kind of save teachers time outside of the classroom so they can really focus on in-classroom engagement. Um, and then obviously for students, um, the the main kind of benefit here would be the um, opening up the door of personalized learning. It's kind of aiming to solve the problem that a lot of classrooms in the U.S. have of, you know, one teacher and 25 students, and they kind of have to teach to the middle, um, you know, kind of base lessons around the average student in that class. Um, and while that obviously would work in some instances, you know, when, when students are struggling with a specific skill, um, but the teacher has to continue forward on the lesson, you know, that can cause some people to fall behind. And then, you know, ultimately it creates this, this slope where, you know, we see test scores decline in some areas and things like that. So I, you know, think that AI um, enabled ed, like ed tech tools can, you know, really help um, kind of close some of those gaps. Um, I think one example that I'm I'm pretty excited about and is still just in the pilot phase would be the Khan Academy um, Conmigo feature. It's a um, it's a AI enabled tutoring program using GPT four, um, and it just has a really impressive um, kind of uh, 
demos to it, you know, in terms of the the way it really interacts with you and really builds and it'll kind of drill not only kind of the places you have deficits, which is sort of a traditional model of personalized learning, um, but also where you have strengths and kind of will offer what you're good at in, in ways where you in a modality where you might not be so good at it and things like that. And, you know, the results have already been pretty promising of, you know, they've tested it, I think, on um, maybe one certain grade level of math, um, like algebra one or something like that. And, you know, uh, overall, like the, re- the results are, are great in terms of, you know, student engagement, you can kind of monitor through those programs of, you know, how, how focused are students on this, plus, are they actually getting better? It's obviously something measurable with math versus, you know, a humanities subject, but I think it's it's a really interesting application. I I would just quickly add on um, the benefits, I think, to to many of our jobs, right? Like not only those of us who are policy analysts, but I think a lot of the audience, um, you know, audience of ILFP, which is that, you know, a lot of our jobs are writing and summarizing. Um, ChatGPT can be very good at that. That doesn't mean that it's, you know, it's over for us, uh, but it's about how do you integrate this into your work? Um, uh, And I think actually something that our organization has done is kind of take this company-wide briefing of, you know, you're going to use ChatGPT, but how how can they ensure that we are using it in the right ways, right? So there's this, actually, there's this example of, um, you know, I was writing some paper and and I needed to know, um, I needed a link for, you know, labor impacts on AI. And I, I asked ChatGPT, who, who's written on this? And I I, I don't know, I, didn't, I hadn't asked any questions for ITIF and they said, ITIF has written a paper on that. And I said, okay, send me the name. And it sends me the name and it, I said, who wrote it? And it gave the name of the president of the organization. A completely fictitious paper. Um, but had I not kind of done this um, work to, I searched our website, I actually went up to his office and asked him if he'd written this paper, he said no. But there was a world in which I hadn't done that, you know, published it and sent it off to him. And he's thinking, you know, what kind of policy analyst is this? She's saying I wrote fictitious things. Um, but 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 it can be very helpful, right? ChatGPT is only going to get better. Uh, future models are go- only going to improve. But I think the onus is on organizations to ensure that, um, you know, uh, people, especially people in our roles are, you know, incorporating this in the right way. Um, and so I think, you know, benefits exist for for people, I think, in our audience, but, but really thinking about, um, you know, what are the steps that we need to ensure that that is done in the kind of, um, most beneficial way, right? Yeah, yeah no, and that, I would, oh, sorry. I would just add that, like, with the education case, it's obviously, it's not just the benefits. It's about, you know, engaging um, teachers and administrators in the process and kind of helping them, you know, giving them the professional development needed to actually be able to incorporate this kind of thing. Kind of what Hadam was saying about our organization has kind of offered these, um, you know, different seminars on how to actually use it for research or for, you know, enhancing your writing. Um, the same kind of thing has to apply to pretty much all sectors and kind of help people understand exactly how they can be using it in their jobs. What are some thoughts about implementing new innovation? Uh, should you always be like, oh, it's a new trendy term or should you be more thoughtful or what are some considerations you approach? Uh, Charlie, you can begin from the cybersecurity perspective. It depends on what perspective, uh, you know, who would be answering this question. You know, if it's a organization seeking to adopt the technology or are we, you know, speaking from the standpoint of, of maybe a policymaker, um, you know, I think just starting on the latter, um, you know, I think we're, uh, you know, we're engaging with a lot of uh, policymakers around the world uh, on this on this topic. And I think in large part, you know, I think a lot of the reaction we've seen from, um, you know, the United States, I think it's kind of the balance, right, where, uh, you know, we, we need to be responsible, 
but we also need to ground kind of what we're doing uh, in understanding that we need to preserve this kind of spirit of, of innovation and opportunity that can um, unlock a lot of benefit to, to society. And so any approach, uh, I think, needs to, uh, you know, be mindful of, of both sides there. Um, and on the kind of responsible AI piece, I think there's no, there's no silver bullet. Um, I think there's, it's kind of a multi-layered uh, approach is needed where, um, you know, for, for certain use cases or, or problem sets, um, we need to come together to focus on new standards, new best practices, things like that. Um, on another level, for other challenges, uh, regulation may be needed. Um, in particular, I think uh, for areas like like high risk applications of artificial intelligence, and you know, you can think of like critical sectors and things things like that. Um, and then for still other problems, uh, I think more fundamental research is needed um, to to kind of uh, you know build build entirely new approaches that we can't even. Uh, you know, really think of right now. Um, so uh, I think there's no, you know, you know, specific silver bullet here, as I mentioned, but um, from a policymaker point of view, I think uh, there's a lot of interesting conversations going on right now, clearly. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I think you need to look at the specific use case uh, to determine kind of the specific solution that's needed. Um. To add on to that, I think when it comes to implementation and challenges around implementation, oftentimes um, I think there's a focus on talent and knowledge. Like, does this organization, and, or you know, if the government is adopting AI, do they have the talent for it and do they have the knowledge of it? Um, and really focusing on those things, which I think are very important, right? But they are things that policymakers think about. Um, but there are all these other really important things to think about, these kind of structural barriers, even if an organization knows that AI would be useful for it, even if they know that they could, you know, get some money and get the talent, there might not be a culture of change, right? Especially in government, especially gov certain government agencies, there might not be a culture of adapting well to change. There might not be financing for it. There might not be um, incentives or, you know, the right metrics to ensure that it's adopted in the right way. There might not be, you know, good procurement rules or even guidance about where to procure some of these systems from. And, you know, as Charlie touched on, there might not be uh, the right um, kind of mechanisms for oversight and review. And so it's not just about making sure that people know AI is helpful to them or that they have like the people to do it. It's really about thinking comprehensively about the structural um, challenges they face. Um, and I think, you know, you and I, Alvaro, were just in a meeting earlier today talking about, um, you know, the challenges with um, being able to adopt or, you know, organizations being able to adopt risk management frameworks. It's a very complex thing. Um, and so how do we make sure that, um, you know, there is not only that guidance exists, but really a constantly um, thinking about the barriers to adoption in that way? Just and just really quick, I, I like the way you broke that down. And, and one other thing I would add that that may be missing for some enterprises or sectors is is data itself. Um, some sectors uh, uh, have, you know, spent invested the last, you know, decade, uh, you know, putting their data in a cloud or somewhere where they can make use of it. Um, other sectors, uh, you know, are not, you know, categorizing, you know, collecting, categorizing, and making use of the data. And if you don't have that as a precursor, um, you know, there, that where there's nothing to even train these large language models on, you're not going to be able to make use of this technology.
I'd also just add from, you know, thinking about implementation from just like a very wide, high level social standpoint, you know, something Hadan and I have thought a lot about is AI literacy and just kind of how we build the in the, in the general AI literacy in the general public. Um, and what I would mean by that would just be kind of at a high level, having everyone in the U.S. sort of understand how these technologies like machine learning work and how they could be used for problem solving and kind of the consequences of it. And I don't necessarily mean a technical understanding, but, you know, we've sort of spoke about how maybe in the past we weren't all cognizant of when AI was being used. But I think as it becomes more and more mainstream to be thinking about that, you know, AI literacy and kind of helping all sorts of people in the U.S. understand when it's being used and what's an appropriate use case and what's not um, would be would be very useful to implementation. Charlie, you've spoke a little bit about the, the positive use cases around here, but could you each speak about some exciting use that you've seen or excited about looking forward down the road or uh, some promise? Two things that came to mind. One was one of the things that we do um, each week is we do these um, they're called five Qs and it's five questions for data innovators. And recently I did one with this British AI company called Carbon Re and they use AI to um, decarbonize the cement process. I didn't realize that the cement process was actually extremely, well, I knew it was carbon intensive, but I didn't realize it like cement accounts for something like 8% of CO2 emissions globally. Um, and you often hear about, you know, AI for climate, but, you know, typically they aren't as, complex like this was an extreme like they are using extremely complex models um to decarbonize i'm not going to do it justice so you'll have to find the interview um but i thought it was really really interesting um and you know when i asked if this is it had it had twofold benefits one was that it was um reducing the, the, the carbon emissions but it was also saving plants tons of money um and so it you know i was like well why isn't everybody doing this why isn't everyone developing such solutions um to decarbonize steel all these other things and um you know the ceo of this company said well it's because it's incredibly complex problem to solve and they are actually spun out of an academic institution I think that they started off at Oxford and then kind of spun out um, and so I think you know one of the questions I have is how do we ensure that when you have a really complex public sector problem right something like uh, you know AI for decarbonization or you know in some instances, AI for healthcare, or as you mentioned, like AI for humanitarian problems. That's not something that necessarily the market is going to sufficiently solve by itself. There really has to be a role for government to support innovation in this space because it's innovation, right? It's not competitiveness. Um, and so, you know, what is the role for government there? Um, and especially if the, the problems are so complex that the barrier to do it is so high, you know, what is the role for encouraging academia to do some of these problems and spin out those things that could uh, be most beneficial? I thought that was kind of an interesting thing to think about. And then the other side, the other thing that it made me think of, which isn't necessarily AI specific, um, is this report I wrote a couple of years ago called um, something about mobility data. Essentially, it was the ways in which you can use uh, mobility data, which is data about how people move around, right? So if you're trying to solve certain humanitarian crises, you need to know how people are moving. Or if you want to solve, um, you know, I don't know, or not, not solve, but kind of help address uh, problems related to, um, you know, uh, people being displaced or that sort of thing. And knowing, you know, I don't know, there's been a tornado and you need to, people are moving here. Having granular data about where people move, that data actually sits in the private sector. Uber, Facebook, they know on a granular level where I'm at, where I was a second ago and how I'm moving, right? In a way that the census that's collected every 10 years does not know. 
But the private sector is not incentivized or supported to, to share that data, right? Why would they, all the privacy risks that are associated with sharing mobility data, the costs to them to de-anonymize and aggregate that data to make it um, sufficiently available, who should they be sharing with, right? Uh, which researchers should and shouldn't they do this with? Um, there are all these challenges which I touch on in the report. Um, and so even if we wanted to use AI for mobility, you know, I don't know, to solve certain humanitarian crises, um, you really need to have policies that support um, the access to private sector mobility data. Um, and so that was something else I thought of. Anyway, I'll stop there. Building off what Hadam was saying is that, you know, we do need to create an environment that kind of incentivizes these humanitarian applications. And right now we really don't have that even at the fundamental level. Um, something she wrote about in her report was um, the European Union's idea of data altruism, um, meaning, you know, certain organizations can kind of register as um, a data altruism organization and kind of donate their data for the public good in that way. But um, importantly, as it stands, I'm probably can correct me if I'm wrong, but um, that doesn't include private sectors. Private sector organizations can't um, register as a data altruism organization. So we're kind of, we need to think about when we're creating sort of legislation that we're actually enabling these social good applications and not just automatically limiting them on the basis of its public sector or private sector, things like that. I guess to close off the panel, uh, if you each could just give some closing thoughts about, I know it's the worst thing to ask, but predictions, uh, you can, whether it be in the next year or two years or things uh, you're looking out for, um, thank you. Okay. Um, I think what I'm looking out for in the next two years is to see, well, one, if we get any sort of national privacy legislation, because that's really important to, yeah, um, fingers crossed to the development of, of AI in the education sector as a whole. You know, schools are really resistant to sort of use it because they're really worried about, and districts are worried because they're worried about staying in compliance, obviously, with current privacy laws. And, you know, when we're going in the states at things, then the, company, the ed tech companies are worried about, you know, how will we port our data across state borders if one state has this law, one state has that. So something I'm looking out, definitely privacy legislation. Also kind of looking to see, you know, now we've had almost a full school year with ChatGPT, but, you know, kind of a mix on where we are with the bans versus, you know, allowing them to, um, allowing the tool to be used in the classroom. So interested in kind of seeing how that develops and, you know, whether schools and districts take more firm stances and, and whether that comes at the district or the state level, things like that. Um, I guess uh, an easy prediction to make is that uh, these models will get better, right? The, the, the types of uh, models and also the the companies developing them, um, I think it's going to, you know, become an even better. Um, I think one of the areas there are there are many, but one of the areas that I'm interested in keeping an eye on is, um, you know, given the upcoming election cycle, I think, you know, um, AI and mis and disinformation is one that I um, hope to keep my finger on. Um, and really, uh, yeah, I won't make any predictions, but I think that it's one that policy um, will be more interested in, um, you know, given given the election cycle. Those are all good ones. I, you know, I'm interested to see. I think the, you know, from basically the the beginning of this year, even December, um, you know, there's been a huge, uh, uh, you know, hype cycle created, if you will. Um, I'm interested to see how the conversation evolves as perhaps that kind of cycle cools off, um, and you know, certain risks that that were much theorized don't come to pass, or or maybe vice versa, new new things we hadn't considered. Uh, become more pressing. And so I'm interested to see how the conversation uh, evolves there. That's a great way to end it. Uh, thank you all. Uh, thank you to our panelists. And thank you, everyone. Have a great day.
Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Tech Policy Grind. If you enjoyed the show, get in touch with us at Foundry Podcasts with an S at ilpfoundry.us or leave us a review wherever you're tuning in. I'm Rima Musa, the host of the show, and this podcast wouldn't be possible without the help of our team at the Internet Law and Policy Foundry. Thank you to Evan Enzer for editing this episode, Lama Muhammad, our social coordinator, Alison McReynolds, our accessibility coordinator, and Tim Lorden at the Internet Education Foundation. See you next time.